All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your War in Heaven speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we're going to be talking about the novel Between Two Fires, which was written by Christopher Buhlman and published in 2012. This episode is another installment in our series on medievalism in speculative fiction, and that means that I am not by myself today. I am, in fact, joined by my longtime friend, Jay Deal, who is a historian of medieval monasticism at Long Island University. Jay, welcome back. We uh, haven't done one of these since the, the summertime. I've actually been, uh, been quite missing this. Yeah, I have too. I'm looking forward to getting into this. Yeah, this is going to be a, a fun one, maybe a bit of an of an outlier. And the you know the deal with this series is that we read speculative fiction novels, and then we talk about how the writers are appropriating and adapting components of medieval society, medieval culture, medieval institutions, and using that to make up their own imaginary worlds. But this time we are going to be doing something a bit different because Between Two Fires is our very first supernatural horror book, and also our very first book that is set in the real world. It is actually set in the real medieval Western Europe. And so that means that we're not going to spend very much time talking about world building or you know figuring out how society and culture and institutions work in an imaginary setting. But that said, I think we still have plenty to talk about. So uh, let's get into it. And the first thing that we should say is that the book is called Between Two Fires. And uh, that's a metaphor. It's actually, I think, a double metaphor in some yeah, sense in the book. Absolutely. It actually shows up in the the plot. But the two fires really of the, the title, I think, working in a big way, are referring to the fact that the, the 14th century, the 1300s, were uh, not a great time to be living in Western Europe, in particular to be living in France. And the idea is that there are, well, you are caught between two fires. And I think we'll start this episode off just by talking about you know the the historical background the context for this right what are the two fires one of them is the hundred years war i'll talk about that in a little bit but the the bigger of the of the two fires is the black death and jay you're going to tell us a little bit about that yeah i'm happy to run us through kind of some some details on the black death um i think that for a lot of people when they if they know something about medieval Europe, if they know anything about it, one of those things is probably the Black Death, um, this plague pandemic that swept through parts of Asia and most of Europe. So in terms of a few details about this, um, the dates we usually associate it are 1346 to about 1353, uh, the period in which this plague pandemic kind of burned its way through Europe. Um, it's caused by a bacteria, a nasty little bacterium called Yersinia pestis, um, whose main reservoir is in rats or other kinds of rodents. Um, a recent article suggests that it probably uh, first became an issue with marmots uh, somewhere in the Far East. Um, and it's usually transmitted to humans by fleas that have previously bit rats. So flea bites a rat, gets the bacteria, then bites a human, and that transmits the bacteria to humans, resulting in the bubonic plague, uh, so named because it is characterized by the formation of these buboes or little swellings in the groin or the armpits or something like that. Although it can also be translated or transmitted person to person as a kind of pneumonia plague as well. Um, unsurprisingly, for something called the Black Death, it has a very high mortality rate. Um, most historians estimate that somewhere between 30 and 60% of Europe's population died as a result of the Black Death. 
It's usually thought to have entered Europe uh, via traders, probably from the Italian city of Genoa, um, coming maybe from the Crimea around 1347. It spread from there to both Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire and then to Sicily, which was its main entry point into Western Europe. And from Sicily, it begins to make its way northwest, first to Spain and France by early 1348, then Portugal and England after that, eventually Germany and Scandinavia, and finally reaching Russia in 1351. And it's worth pointing out that even though we have this initial period, um, 1346 to 1353, usually called the Black Death proper, um, there are several recurring waves of the bubonic plague after that, um, stretching through the 14th, 15th into the 16th century. Death rates very high in urban centers. This book captures that a little bit. Um, For instance, perhaps very germane to this book. Um, Historians estimate that maybe one half of Paris's population died. Paris had a population maybe of about 100,000 at this point. About half of that probably died during the plague's entry and spread through Paris. Um, And I think the other thing for us that's important to point out that as this book also indicates, religious responses to the plague were widespread. Um, There was a surge in already virulent anti-Jewish sentiment during this time, up to and including attacks on Jewish communities, particularly in Germany. Although the book is also accurate in depicting Pope Clement VI's proclamation that the Jews were not to blame for the plague and to call for the protection of Jewish communities, which were not always heeded. Um, And of course, it was natural at this time to think that the plague was a punishment sent from God for the sins of Christians, or in many cases, specifically for the failings of the church, which opened a door for people to see a connection between the plague and what we call the Avignon papacy. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And certainly apocalypticism, belief that the end of the world was nigh, gained a lot of traction during this period as well. There's always been a kind of latent apocalypticism in Christian theology, um, but in moments where, you know, everyone you know is dying from some disease, those sentiments are naturally going to peak a little bit, and perhaps the flagellant movements depicted in this book could be connected to those sentiments as well. So there you have it, the Black Death. Yeah, awesome. That was a that was a great uh, summary of the Black Death in a nutshell. And of course, people have a pretty renewed interest in the Black Death right now because we in our society have gone through our own recent pandemic. One thing to emphasize, of course, is this book is you know predates the COVID pandemic by nearly a, a decade. So Buhlman does not have that on his mind as he's as he's writing this book. But we have all experienced what even a, a relatively low mortality, widespread disease can do to a, a society and also you know what what efforts to contain it can can do to a society uh, what are the ramifications and so on and so there's been a lot of renewed interest in looking at all sorts of other pandemics and epidemics in history the black death i think being a a big one and i've i've seen some articles recently jay in which people are uh, really more early modern historians and modern historians thinking about their period modernity maybe as a whole early modernity specifically as the society, the the culture, the civilization that grows up in Western Europe in the aftermath of the Black Death, dealing with the world of this apocalypse, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, when you have an event like the Black Death, which seems of of such monumental scale that it can't help but have dramatic effects on society and culture. Um, it becomes natural to think of it as kind of a rupture point in history or a major turning point or something like that. And, you know, not coincidentally, um, 
a lot of things associated with the beginning of the modern world seem to start happening uh, in the wake of the plague. Uh, you know, the Italian Renaissance is, is something that is often pointed to as perhaps uh, a movement that grew out of the 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 terrors and horrors of the Black Death. Um, and you will see also claims that sort of uh, a newly capitalized economy began to emerge um, once labor shortages existed as a result of everyone being dead. Um, the remaining laborers were able to negotiate better wages for themselves and things like this. Um, so there definitely has been uh, a kind of extensive school of thought that associates the effects of the plague with the transformation of society and culture from what we might think of as properly medieval to something that's more early modern or proto-modern or something like that. I think it's worth pointing out that, like you said, a lot of those arguments uh, come from people working on early modern history or modern history. And I think medievalists, especially in the last 20 years, have been a little bit more hesitant um, to see the plague as something that kind of shattered a medieval worldview and created the potential for the kind of recreation of society um, in things like the Renaissance and stuff like that. I think a lot of medievalists have been quick to point out that a lot of the things that we see, for instance, in the Italian Renaissance were already kind of features of medieval society that were beginning to show up even before the plague was on the scene, that the plague didn't so much shatter a medieval worldview and create space for things like the Italian Renaissance, so much as that the Renaissance was the natural extension of features that were already present in medieval society. And in this sense, people have been a little more skeptical to think of the Black Death as this major rupture um, in social history or political history or cultural history. Um, but it is interesting now, having lived through a pandemic, I think a lot of these ideas, I think a lot of um, kind of popular media sites have been digging up these ideas about how the Black Death completely transformed European history um, to try to project and help us cope with like, what can we expect out of our post pandemic world? And indeed, like in the middle of the pandemic, it's very comforting to hear that, oh, the last time there was a big pandemic, uh, society experienced this massive renaissance as a result of it once you got through to the other side. Uh, I tend to be a little skeptical, I suppose, but um, it, it's certainly a, a prevalent strain of thought. Yeah, I share your skepticism there. And certainly I share your skepticism along these cultural lines, which is so often what people point to. I do think that yeah. it would be a little naive to assume that half of all people dying doesn't have a profound effect on like labor relations, yeah, uh, how, exactly. you know, material no, culture, or material existence and so on. Right. I think this is a place where a Marxist or maybe more properly a historical materialist approach, I think, can can do a lot of really interesting work. But yeah, for some reason, you're right. This often frequently is 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 brought up as, well, the Renaissance and the Reformation, you know, sort of owe their existence to the Black Death. And that's something I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of. But there are some, I think, pretty great books we could recommend to people who are interested in reading a little bit more about uh, not so much the Black Death specifically, though we can recommend some of those as well, but thinking about the aftermath of the Black Death. And the, the first one I'll recommend is by uh, David Herlihy, who really is an early modernist. 
But he has a book from the 90s called The Black Death and the Transformation of the West. This is actually a really short book. It's what's called an academic trade book, meaning it's, you know, light on on notes and just, you know, it's eminently readable uh, is what the point I'm trying to make there. And then uh, another book that I'll recommend as well is um, actually uh, translated from Dutch. So it goes by two different names in English. One is The Waning of the Middle Ages. The other is The Autumn of the Middle Ages, which I think is what it's more commonly published as now. And this is by uh, historian uh, Johan Huizinga. And uh, this is actually a really, really classic work on looking at the late Middle Ages. And this is a work of of cultural history. And I think that uh, although it's had profound effect, I think probably, as you're suggesting, Jay, the current mood in scholarship on the later Middle Ages is to often be pushing back against a lot of his claims yeah. and conclusions. But it's a beautiful, beautiful book and just um, almost reads kind of like a fantasy novel in some ways than just the way it's so immersive. Yeah, it's a gorgeous book. And I think, you know, despite um, how bad the 14th century would be, I think a lot of historians now are are pushing towards skepticism when it comes to the idea of a crisis of the late Middle Ages um, and and. Yeah, there's a, a famous line in an article by a scholar I admire very much um, that says something to the effect of uh, any period whose nomenclature begins with the word late is in trouble to begin with. And a period <laughs> known as the late Middle Ages is probably doomed from the start, which I think is a nice way to capture when we call something the Middle Ages already as kind of a pejorative term in origin. And then calling something the late Middle Ages just makes it sound like this period has nothing redeeming whatsoever uh, to begin with. And I think um, has shaped a lot of a lot of thinking about what the 14th century and the early 15th century were like for people living in them. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great line. Who Who is that? That's John Van Engen uh, in in an article called Multiple Choices uh, About Religion in the Late Middle Ages. Uh, It was his presidential address to the American Society of Church Historians, I think. So not super relevant to to this book, uh, but a, a nice way of thinking about the period for sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, as someone who works on late antiquity, right? I mean, if we have this, it's all the same idea. It's like, well, I mean, like the cool part's already over. And this is really just, it's like, just waiting for bedtime, basically. You know, he's like, I guess I, you know, I look at something on my phone or something, you know, while I, while I wait, which is not a good way to to, to frame, you know, centuries of people's, uh, of people's lives is uh, that's, yeah, not a good way to frame that. Uh, Do you have any other book recommendations before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually going to make a plug for something that's not a book. um, And that is a little less readable for a lot of our audience. Um, But I feel like I would be remiss to not point out a recent article published in the American Historical Review by Monica Green called The Four Black Deaths. Um, and one of the reasons I, I, I think this article is really salient is because, um, it uses a lot of genetic analysis and hard science to rewrite the history of the black death. And one of its major findings is that the origins of the black death probably extend much earlier than we think all the way back to the 1200s, but also that its history is complicated, um, in terms of looking for the evidence because, uh, she argues there were four distinct genetic strains of Yersinia pestis that spread through uh, Asia, Central Asia, and eventually Europe. Um, but one of the reasons I, I, I would recommend people looking into this article is because it's a, a fascinating examination of the ways in which um, sort of interplay between the traditional humanities and the hard sciences are, are going to make it possible um, to 
to rewrite certain aspects of history to sort of contest claims uh, about um, what the Black Death did to society and what its effects were as sort of new new genetic evidence comes to light. I'm you know I'm as cultural historian as you can find out there, but even I see the 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 kind of potential. Um, in bringing in the kind of hard sciences into cultural history as this article does. Um, I think it's really, a, and you can find a synopses of it. It was covered in, by like National Geographic and Time and stuff. Um, and I think it's a, a, an interesting new way to think about disease and history and to think about how it's going to be written in the future. Yeah, I used that article in class actually about, uh, about a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really wonderful. Right. I had, uh, during the pandemic, rewritten or revised most of my my courses to just be about diseases and be about uh, pandemics and epidemics to just kind of, uh, you know, lean lean into it, right? Given that there was going to be some kind of buy-in. So the Black Death is something I was teaching a lot of. And actually, you had told me about that article, which I'm grateful for because oh, right. I used it in class to, to great success. And so, yeah, if you've got a JSTOR account through, you know, a library or in some other kind of institution that might have that, I definitely recommend checking that article out. I'm going to make one more recommendation to our listeners here before we move on to talking about the other fire here in our two fires, the Hundred Years' War. And that's actually a, a podcast uh, called the Infectious Historians Podcast that is actually done by two of our uh, colleagues, friends, uh, erstwhile gaming and drinking partners, uh, Lee Mordecai and Merle Eisenberg. These are uh, Princeton colleagues of mine. We were all grad students there together, and they have gone on actually to be historians working on the history of disease, among other things. And they have a podcast together where they bring on other historians or other scholars. Uh, they're not always historians, other scholars and scientists working on disease in some way to talk about diseases of mostly the past, but also sometimes the present. And so there's quite a bit of material on the Black Death, but also th episodes about smallpox or the, the Spanish flu and, and cholera and so on. It's a fantastic show. Again, that's the Infectious Historians podcast. I highly recommend that. But all right, let's uh, go talk about this second of two fires here, which is the Hundred Years' War. And the Hundred Years' War is, I guess, probably the second most famous conflict or series of conflicts in the Middle Ages, right? I mean, you know, the Crusades obviously being the biggest one, but if you ask people to name a second one, this is the one that we might get, I think, as an answer by at least, you know, some segment of the general public here. And as the name suggests, it was indeed a war that lasted a hundred years, really over a hundred years. It began in 1337 and then ended in 1453, though, you know, we should be clear that people at the time really considered this to be at least three separate wars. And this is in much the same way that, you know, the First World War and the Second World War are really distinct for us. But in 600 years, they might be grouped together, at least in popular culture in some, some sense, right? Okay, but whether or not we're counting it as one long Hundred Years' War or three and a half distinct wars, nonetheless, these were a series of wars that were fought really along the same lines. They were fought between the ruling family of England and the ruling family of France, plus also you know some allies on both sides. And the conflict was about several issues. Uh, one of them was who, in fact, should be the ruling family of France following the death of the last French king who came from the uh, Capetian family or the, you know, the Capet family, the House of Capet, often called the extinction of the Capetians, which is a pretty cool phrase. I don't know. It's a good album name, I guess, for a metal band or something Ooh, at some nice. point, right? Uh, but there were other factors as well. Uh, there was the fact that parts of what is today France were 
already under the direct rule of the kings of England. Um, and, you know, the French ruling family didn't really like that very much. And so in 1340, English forces landed in France to lay claim to the French crown. And ultimately, I think, as we all know, living in the world today, England and France are not the same country right now. So I think we all know that the French won this war. And, you know, the legacy of this war is is with us in a, a you know, a pop culture sense, right? It survives in our pop culture, largely in the form of Shakespeare, specifically the play Henry V, uh, but also because this is the context of Joan of Arc, who everyone has heard of, of course, although Joan of Arc also in Shakespeare. And we should say as well that the war looms really quite large in French history. And that's because the war took place in France and it was devastating. In fact, I think for a long time, Jay, French historians barely bothered thinking about the Black Death because for them, the devastating event of the 14th century was not the Black Death. It was not this plague pandemic. It was the war. That's really what was devastating for them in the late Middle Ages. Now, obviously, that is a perspective you can really only have if political history is your lens. And, you know, that's how history as a profession got started. So there it is, right? If you're looking at it through other lenses, I think the, you know, hey, half the population died is probably the bigger, the bigger deal. But at any rate, we should talk about what matters for this book, right? Because the Black Death is 1348. The invasion of France was in 1340. So this Hundred Years' War is really, you know, only just getting started. It's really just the very beginning of this long conflict that is showing up here in the book. And indeed, there is one engagement that really matters for Between Two Fires, and that is the Battle of Crecy. Now, this battle was fought in the summer of 1346 near the town of Crecy in northern France, and it was just an absolute disaster for the French forces. This is actually a pretty famous battle uh, in military history. It's famous for demonstrating the superiority of the English longbow, which could, you know, it could shoot really far and it could also pierce armor. So this was a real tactical advantage for the English on the battlefield. And the English forces knew that. They knew how to use their weapons, but the French didn't really know how to deal with these weapons tactically. And so the battle was really a kind of slaughter. Uh, the English casualties were, well, we don't always know what, you know, historical casualties were, certainly not in pre-modernity, but I think most people accept that the English casualties were possibly no more than a few hundred, maybe even only a few tens, while the French lost thousands. And those French losses included a lot of leadership. This includes actually the King of Bohemia, who was leading an allied force, though obviously his story is actually very cool, but you know we're not really going to get into that here in the book. Uh, but also lost were Junior members of the French royal family, uh, you know, dukes and counts also, and even some important uh, church leaders, bishops and archbishops. And so, yeah, when the Black Death arrived just two years later, France was already in political disarray. Northern France had also suffered materially from the war already. And so from this perspective, the apocalypse of the 1340s really was a matter of being caught between two fires. Uh, we're going to return to this idea of apocalypse in a moment. But before we move on, I do also want to say that uh, you know we have some recommendations here. If you're interested in the Hundred Years' War, uh, my sense, Jay, is that the gold standard in English anyway is Jonathan Sumption, who has multiple volumes on the war, really a, a narrative history focused on storytelling. And so uh, these books, I think, serve as a fantastic introduction. But uh, maybe you have some other recommendations as well. Yeah, I mean, th that's definitely the go-to one that I have in my mind, um, which is very readable and, and very approachable and is a, a sprawl 
sprawling narrative of the entire conflict. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that that remains the kind of go to recommendation in in everybody's mind, I think. Yeah, and it really is quite readable. So, uh, yeah, I think between some books on uh, Black Death, some books on the Hundred Years' War here, uh, we've we've given you you know a nice bit of reading for 2023, even if if that's all the reading that you do. Well, speaking of reading, Jay, let's actually get into the book that we have read, you know, here for us to talk about, which I'm very excited about. This is a a cool book and it's going to be an interesting new type of conversation for us. One of the things we're going to do a little bit differently this time is not do a big plot synopsis. We will have something akin to that eventually. But really, we're going to start just by talking about who the characters are in this book, because this is really a a kind of travelogue. This is a book that's about three characters trying to get from one part of France to another part of France and having some adventures along the way. So we're going to walk through those three characters. Jay's going to do most of the heavy lifting here. Jay, so tell us about the real primary character in this book. Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting question in my mind, actually, who the protagonist of this book is. I, I think there are two contenders, but one of those contenders is uh, the girl, um, uh, uh, a girl character. We do not learn her name until fairly far into the book, um, but her name does turn out to be Delphine, um, a, a francophone name, um, but connected uh, to the idea of Delphi, uh, the oracle at Delphi in Greek history, which is uh, obvious foreshadowing of her role in this. Uh, how to describe her character? She's a, a precocious kind of girl living in a French village. Um, she's the daughter, apparently, of a French lawyer. And one of the amusing conceits that runs through the uh, book is her tendency to interact with other characters as if she is a lawyer. Um, uh, she's on the cusp of puberty seems to be what we can determine from some of the storytelling. Um, and from our very first introduction to her, um, when she is at a her family's farmhouse, but both of her parents now dead, um, and her farm is kind of uh, visited by a group of uh, countryside brigands of some sort from the first moment that we are introduced to her we are told that she is having visions of angels that she can see angels and later we find out that she can also see devils as well and her apparent holiness um is a developing theme of the entire novel as well as is the question of her exact nature who exactly delphine really is um and it, it is hinted at and evoked throughout the entire story that something is going on with this character, that she is more than she would seem to be clearly more um, than just a regular French uh, country girl. Um, and, you know, the, the the novel plays with several possibility. Obviously, she can see angels, um, which makes you immediately think of sort of medieval visionaries. Um possibly intended to evoke Joan of Arc herself, um, another French girl in communication with the divine. Um, There are various devil characters that uh, show up at points who are troubled by her existence and don't know what she is and continuously say they're going to find out what she is, sometimes in quite horrible graphic language. We're going to cut you open and figure out exactly what you are. And her nature is not resolved until the very end of the story. I'm not sure we want to get into that just now in summarizing the character and and give away who Delphine turns out to be. I don't know. Should we do that now or do that later? 
Uh, yeah, I think we could do that. I think we could do that now, though. We will talk more specifically about the last act of this book later in the episode, but I don't think we need to tease yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, it is strongly suggested that, in fact, Delphine is uh, Christ, uh, is the son, or in this case, in more genderless terms, the child of God, um, apparently incarnate again on Earth uh, for the second time. Uh, Delphine is unaware of this for most of the novel, kind of gradually comes to the realization. Um, and it is, it seems to be most directly confirmed, uh, when she's confronting a devil towards the end, the devil asks her who she is. Uh, and she says, you know who I am. And the devil says, ah, or, oh, that, then I guess you'll remember this, uh, and stabs Delphine with a spear a relic that they had found earlier in the novel, which is strongly suggested to be the spear of Longinus, the spear that put Jesus out of his misery on the cross and eventually caused his death. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Delphine shows up in hell to rescue one of the other characters from his torments in hell, which is a, supposed to be a clear parallel, I think, of the idea of the harrowing of hell, in which while Jesus was dead during three days, he went down to hell and liberated uh, all the virtuous but pre-Christian people from hell who had not had the opportunity to be saved because the saving work of Christ's redemption had not yet been done. So, yeah, it seems that the, the claim of the novel is that uh, Christ, the child of God, was incarnate again in the form of Delphine uh, in the 14th century. And Bowman has done this in a real interesting way because he's this is clearly not the second coming of Christ, right? This is not Christ has returned and is ushering in the kingdom of heaven because it doesn't seem to be the case that Delphine was born as Christ returned, that Christ has returned in this moment. He's he's somehow like possessed her body, essentially, or has something about him has possessed her body anyway because of this particular crisis, the crisis being uh, these two fires which are being... Uh, well, they've they've been created actually by these demons. And so this is not returning to usher in the kingdom of God, but returning to put out, you know, metaphorically to put out some kind of fire and then leaves Delphine at the end of this book. And Delphine continues on the rest of her life just as a regular human again. So, you know, I don't know yeah. about the theology of, of, of this, but it is maybe the, <laughs> you know, the one and a half coming of, of Christ. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I would say it is not... Uh consonant with uh, theology as it was understood in the Middle Ages or today. Um, the idea of a a second kind of semi-incarnation in this way, but, but in the way, as you say, as a possession or something like that, rather than a birth. Um, yeah, I think probably stands at odds with, uh, with strict theological readings, but it's certainly an interesting concept to play around with here. It is a good question. When exactly she becomes, um, when exactly she becomes the, the son of God, what, at what point this kind of union is, you know, it says it, she sort of says at various points, um, I used to be one thing. Now I'm two things at the same time. Soon I'll only be one thing again. Um, was she born, born to this? Was she created to it or did she kind of come to it later in life it, it's never given full explanation i don't think um 
Yeah. And, you know, the question, is this the the second coming or something like that? I, I don't know. It's kind of a fun, provocative concept. Maybe this was the second coming. You know, the the original Messiah defied everybody's expectations. Maybe the second coming will defy theological expectations as well, um, as opposed to Jesus descending bodily from heaven to 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 judge the quick and the dead. Uh, perhaps this is what it will look like. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a good question for Buhlman if we ever encounter him at a, a con or something, which actually I would I would love to do. I'd love to talk with him about yeah. what is going on in this book. Well, let me move us on here and talk about the the second of our three characters who are going to go on this uh, uh, epic road trip. And this is a, a character named Thomas. Thomas is, at the beginning of this novel, one of these brigands who shows up at Delphine's farm. This group of brigands are, they're going to rape Delphine, but Thomas doesn't want to have anything to do with that. And in fact, he does not want that to happen. And so he takes matters into his own hands and uh, essentially kills the leader of the the brigands and uh, you know d- does some other things to the the other members of this uh, this gang, essentially, in order to rescue Delphine. And then they are teamed up at this at this point. But we should talk about his background because Thomas was formerly a knight. He's a knight who fought bravely at this Battle of Cressy. Uh, His lord died there. And then after this battle, he was discredited. Thomas was discredited. I mean, he's accused of heresy. He's excommunicated. He's uh, denighted and stripped of his lands. His wife ends up marrying the person who now has control of those lands. And so Thomas now has no family, has no place in society, and has therefore become a brigand in order to make a living. But of course, as we've said, he's a good one. He you know, prevents his comrades from raping Delphine and then steps into this role as her protector. But he is uncouth. I mean, super uncouth. He is prone to swearing. He says that he likes to drink and whore, though we don't actually see a whole lot of that in the book. So maybe that's more of a persona. We see some of it, but not maybe a whole lot of it. But um, I think really the the shorthand way to put this, Jay, I don't know if you agree, but uh, um, he's the hound to Delphine's Arya. If we want a, a contemporary reference point, that seems to be a very good one. Although Delphine is a little sweeter than Arya is in a lot of ways. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the pairing is a, a similar concept, right? Kind of gruff, uh, cynical, brutal warrior character, um, older male character paired with kind of younger, sweeter, putatively innocent, but precocious um, and clever younger female character. Very similar kind of structure. Yeah. Right. The girl characters in these two stories have very different outcomes. One turns out to be Jesus <laughs> and the other one turns out to be even a bigger killer than her protector. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an argument to be made that um, that Thomas should be considered the real protagonist of this book. And I, it almost feels to me like it's his story in a lot of ways, more than it's Delphine's stories. Delphine, because she winds up being Christ, basically, um, you know, is, is central to the plot, but in some ways, um, not the, not the character who experiences the story in the way Thomas Wright is the one who is experiencing the encounter of the divine with Delphine in some ways. He, he feels to me in a lot of ways, like the, the focal character of the story. 
I think that's very true, right? One of the things that we are told right at the beginning is that Delphine's two traveling companions, the, the second of whom we have not met yet, but uh, they both need redemption. They're both in need of yeah. redemption and they both get it in some sense, but the, the second companion isn't going to make it through the whole book. Thomas does. And in fact, the book ends with a, an epilogue in which you know we're very much in his perspective. We're seeing how his life continues as a result of having had this relationship with Delphine and having, you know, navigated this world between the two fires with her. So I think even though the book does not start from his perspective, I think absolutely he is the protagonist. This is his, you know, it's his redemption story for sure. Although Thomas does die as well, we should point out. Uh, That's true. Technically. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Temporarily, but nonetheless. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so we have this third character also, Matthew, um, who I guess we should introduce at this point. Um, Matthew uh, is a parish priest of a small village. We're told it's Saint-Martin-le-Preux. And uh, he's a pretty good character, although draws on some kind of stock tropes of late medieval religion. He's a parish priest um, who's very fond of wine, we are told, uh, in perhaps to the point of actually being an alcoholic. At one point when he goes several days without wine, a character comments that he is looking gray and ill and needs more wine, basically. Um, we also eventually learn that he is sexually attracted to men um, and is referred to over and over again with the term bugger. Uh, this becomes Thomas's nickname for him. And we find out in one of his flashbacks uh, that uh, he was specifically attracted to one particular man in his village um, and eventually kind of gave into temptation uh, and, and sort of... Uh, uh, had a encounter with this man in a river outside of his village, um, but he was discovered there in this state um, and eventually became kind of outcast by his village who began to refuse his sort of ministerings who wouldn't accept last rites from him during when the Black Death eventually came and stuff like this. And like Thomas, um, he appears to be in need of atonement of sorts. Um, becomes a little bit of a mentor figure to Delphine or a protector figure um, similar to Thomas. Um, uh, but unlike Thomas, does not make it through the entire story. And one of their in monstrous encounters uh, this, in this case, with a sort of jellyfish stinging river swarm of some sort, uh, midway through, he, he, uh, dies kind of trying to keep Delphine safe from one of their many encounters and so forth. Um, his brother becomes a pivotal character of sorts towards the end. Uh, his brother is a, a catamite. Uh, living at the papal court in Avignon. But I have to admit, Glenn, I I was surprised by the sudden exit of this character, you know, roughly midway through the book in in a lot of ways, um, and was surprised by the manner of his exit, I have to say. I was as well, because we are told at the beginning that both of these traveling companions need redemption. I do think that Matthew gets his redemption through this act of self-sacrifice here, but I didn't think that was going to happen in the second act, right? I thought that's that's a yeah. third act thing. So to find some narrative conventions there, but also because over and over again, we're told about the importance of this relationship with his brother. And so we think, well, they're obviously going to have to have some kind of 
um, meeting at the very least, if not necessarily a confrontational one. And we actually, we as readers, end up meeting that character in Avignon. But Matthew doesn't doesn't make it there. So you know, it, it's it's serving no. some narrative purpose there, and that it's set up. But yeah, it definitely defied uh, my my expectations there. On the other hand, you know, I I, th- I think it was a good death for him. It, he did get his redemption, and I'm not sure what he would have done in Avignon. You know, if we were going to rewrite the ending and give him something to do. Yeah, no, I I think having him die, you know, having him die, exit the story partway through actually was not a bad decision. I kind of expected it to happen at one of the more dramatic, monstrous moments, perhaps one of the instances where the actual angels and devils became visible and started uh, wreaking havoc on the landscape or something like that. You know, the, the jellyfish swarm was just kind of another you know, one of the more commonplace monstrosities that they encounter in some ways. He certainly got his redemption and in pacing, it seemed like a decent moment for it and certainly came as a surprise, which was which was a nice kind of narrative shock in a lot of ways. But I thought there would be, I, I, I don't know, I guess I expected it to happen with a, a slightly more dramatic encounter than this particular one in some ways. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I've already made, you know, one Game of Thrones joke and it you know, probably will make more, but I think one thing that we can say here about the the way that this narrative is told is that, you know, it is, you know, in a lot of ways, Bielman, it does have a song of ice and fire on his mind. And so this is, you know, taking a yeah. page from Martin's book here and saying anyone could die at any time. And it's not always like, it's not always, you know, epically heroic. Sometimes it's just, it's the low level monsters that get you. Um, and it's not a very ceremonious death, right? And so, yeah, I think, you know, taking a page out of Martin's book. And I think it's worth noting, too, that um, the author here, Buhlman, is is drawing on some pretty well-established kind of tropes of what late medieval Christianity was like, that the parish priest, um, you know, is drunk all the time. He's more interested in wine than piety. He's more, he's, you know, he's, he's more interested in sex than being a good priest in some ways. Um, the character's more conflicted than that. He's not kind of outright debauched or anything like that. Um, but I think these are standard tropes of kind of late medieval religion, often that Christianity was kind of entering this decadent, corrupt phase and stuff like that. And and the author is playing with these ideas right here, but still creating a, a sympathetic character who ultimately does kind of want to do well by his parishioners. Yeah, we should uh, talk a little bit more about this idea of a debauched Christianity. Let's get to that in just a moment. Let me really maybe quickly talk about, hey, what is actually the premise of, of, the, of yeah, this book? Indeed. Now we've got the cast of characters. What do they do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the premise of this book is that Delphine has a mission. And this, of course, is before she or her companions or we, the readers, know that it, she's going to turn out to be Christ in some way. But what Delphine is doing is she is going to go to Avignon in southern France in order to confront the Pope because she knows that something is mystically or numinously wrong with the Pope. Uh, We'll talk more about Avignon in a moment. Uh, We have Thomas and Father Matthew who are going to accompany her on this journey across France. And the basic premise, really, of the first two-thirds of the book is that France has become 
an apocalyptic hellscape full of horrible people and also genuine supernatural monsters. And this is the story of how Delphine and her traveling companions navigate this really interesting world here. I should say as well, we've alluded to this or even I think talked outright about it a little bit, but let's be you know exceptionally clear here that there is some framing to the story. And so we, the readers, know that this is a world in which biblical cosmology is literally true. This is a world of angels and demons. And what is going on here is that the demons have gotten loose in the world and the the plague and the war are really their responsibility. And so, yeah, that's the basic premise. We'll, uh, you know, talk about some of the horrors that they encounter along the way. We've picked up, uh, you know, a few out to talk about. But first, we do need to talk about, you know, why the Pope is in Avignon, because, right, Popes are supposed to be in Rome. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, so one of the other, uh, you know, characteristic events of the 14th century is this thing we call the Avignon Papacy. Um, and just as the name would indicate, the Avignon Papacy is a period, uh, the exact dates are 1309 to 1376, in which the Pope and the papal administration, the papal curia, was located in the southern French city of Avignon rather than its traditional home back in Rome. Um the story behind the papacy's relocation to France is not the easiest one to tell um, and a debate how much detail to give here. But I think arguably it's worth pointing out that it has its origins all the way back in the late 11th century, perhaps when the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, um, the ruler of the German Empire, had this kind of spat over their relative levels of authority in Christendom. We often refer to this as the investiture conflict and that overall um this argument went pretty well for the Pope, actually, who kind of seized the moment to establish authority over the church as a whole and definitely to restrict King's ability to use the church in their kingdom as kind of a tool of royal government that priests and bishops now became subject to the Pope rather than to the king of their kingdom and stuff like this. And over the next century or so, the papacy really centralized the administration of the church and eventually emerged as one of the most powerful institutions, both spiritual, but also temporal in Europe, right? Lots of land, lots of authority, lots of power in just very basic political senses. And so you have these various points throughout the 12th and the 13th and the 14th century when kings um, really make these kind of attempts to reign in the independence of the church in their realms and kind of implicitly also challenging the power of the pope. And these often go pretty badly, actually. One thinks of like the Thomas Becket affair in England in the 12th century until the 14th century. And so the immediate origins of the Avignon papacy reside with a king of France, King Philip IV, the fair who basically, um, in general terms, wanted to tax the church in France to help finance a war with England, to help finance conflicts with England. And the Pope at that time, whose name was Boniface VIII, resisted these attempts and issues this very famous declaration of unbridled papal supremacy over all humans, that all humans created must be subject to the authority of the papacy. And in some ways, this is kind of a contest of wills similar to what we'd had all the way back to the 11th century. But by now, kings were in much stronger positions than they had been. The German emperor in the 11th century, for instance, was always facing threats of rebellions by his nobility. But the French king of the 14th century was the head 
of a pretty sophisticated, relatively centralized state and was much less reliant on the church than his ancestors of the 12th century. And so when Boniface VIII, the Pope, makes this exorbitant claim to papal supremacy, uh, what happens is basically that allies of the French king in Rome break into the papal residence and... uh, How shall we say? They treat him rather roughly, and he eventually just dies shortly thereafter of this rough treatment. And mysteriously, not long after that, a Frenchman and a friend of the French king himself was elected as, actually not the next pope, two popes after this, a guy named Clement V, that's 1305. And later that year, seeking to extricate himself from Roman politics, the pope relocates to France, I think First, he goes to Poitiers for a little while, um, and then eventually to the city of Avignon in 1309. And the next six popes, all of them French, kept the papal court and administration in the city of Avignon all the way until 1378. And we will say that traditionally the Avignon papacy has gotten a pretty bad rap. Um, We have, for instance, Petrarch's famous reference to Avignon as the Babylon of the West, um, disparaging the apparently opulent and increasingly secular nature of the papacy in Avignon, um, that it was kind of just subject to the French king at this point, that the Pope was more like a secular ruler than a spiritual ruler. And I'm sure there's, there, there is a lot of truth to these critiques, no doubts. And the period definitely saw the growth of dissident movements and critics of the church because of the Avignon papacy in some ways setting the stage for the Protestant Reformation. But I also think it's important to, or it's easy to overstate the corruption and worldliness of the papacy during this era. And a lot of recent historians have viewed the period with a little bit more charity and a little bit more optimism, noting that in a lot of ways, you know, the Pope kept the church running pretty effectively during the period of the Avignon papacy um, and, you know, was not simply this tool of the French king in a lot of ways. Right. It, it used to be that you, you could, you know, 100 years ago, even maybe just 50 years ago, you could look in the index of a book about the late Middle Ages and find Avignon Papacy, not under the title Avignon Papacy, but under Babylonian captivity, right? Which exactly. is this, this yeah. metaphor that, that Petrarch used that you're talking about there. But I think we have we have gone away from that, more neutral about uh, our understanding of, of, of what this is. I just want to add a little something to, you know, your discussion about Philip IV, Philip the Fair, the King of France, just to say that he also is the person who's responsible for the disbandment of the Knights Templar, which is something that uh, I think people yeah. who are interested in speculative fiction have some idea of as well. So yeah, Philip IV was, he really did not want anyone in France to have you know state type of authority other than him other than the state itself yeah and i mean this had been a goal of kings for quite a while it, it just really wasn't until the 14th century that they had developed sufficiently robust government apparatuses to actually do this um you know you go back to to henry ii in england and the becket affair you know he kind of wanted the same thing philip the fair did he wanted a church subject to his authority he didn't want anybody else to have any kind of state authority uh but when he tries to push for this it it just blows up in his face basically um kings just didn't have the 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 networks and the tools yet to do what Philip the Fair was able to do in the 14th century. 
And so much of that is about internal developments, right? As you said, when you were talking about the Holy Roman emperors and that they were always facing rebellion, that's true of every head of state, uh, every you know ruler, every prince, I suppose we could say, in the Middle Ages, yeah. you know, certainly the central and and you know early part of the high Middle Ages, and that one of the stories about you know how do we get to the modern types of government that we all live in today is taking place in the Middle Ages as kings and other types of rulers like that curtail the ability of other types of leaders to rebel to set up their own independent polities or you know not even you know necessarily uh, de jure independent polities but de facto independent polities where they can just ignore what the king says or what the the prince says or you know whatever and just do what they want and that's one of the stories that we get really starting in the late 11th century is the story of how that is happening in places like England places like France uh, places like Catalonia even as well and it's uh, it's one of the interesting stories i think of the middle ages and it's easy to see that you know the movement it's easy to read the movement of the papacy to Avignon, to France, as sort of part of that story that, oh, look, kings have now become sufficiently powerful that they can essentially manufacture the election of a pope, force that pope to live in their kingdom subject to their will and stuff like that. But it, it, it's really not that easy. It's the story. It's easy to read the Avignon papacy as, look, kings are now in control of the pope. But it really was more of a cooperative relationship. It's also worth remembering that Avignon, far southern France, um, to use your terminology, southern France at this point, probably de facto under the authority of the French king, but de jure actually kind of was not that southern France was still kind of a separate region from the royal domain of the king of France at this point. Um, You know, so if the if the king of France had really been in a position to just say, ah, I'm going to make the pope my subject here in France, we would have expected him to force the pope to relocate somewhere in northern France, somewhere much closer to his seat of power, I suppose. Right, like literally, maybe on the, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, the Ile de Saint Louis or something like that. Right, the, the you know, we've got this, we've got this great, uh, great church of Notre Dame here. You could use. We've got, you know, <laughs> Saint Denis. You could use if you want. You know, yeah. I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. So this is where, yeah, historians have have started to look at this uh, a little bit differently in the last few generations. But um, in a nutshell, that is why Delphine is going to Avignon, or you know, that, well, she's going to Avignon because the papacy is there. That, in a nutshell, is why the papacy is there. So. So let's talk about the adventures. Let's talk about this. The trip to Avignon. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. It's it's very cool. I really loved this part of the the, the book here where we get uh, just encounters with all sorts of different supernatural, uh, not even just creatures, supernatural entities, supernatural effects. And I think that we can talk about, you know, we'll go through a list of them here and we can talk about, uh, you know, where we see resonance in medieval literature, also maybe medieval popular religion I think will be very fun and you know the first encounter that we we have is this monster in the river near where I mean really in the, the town where Father Matthew had been the parish priest there's some kind of monster snake-like maybe dragon-like monster in the river that's you know eaten up all the fish in the river but is also now just starting to eat people who you know wander too close to the river and Thomas has to go fight this monster, right? And this is actually step one, right? In his redemption arc is that he goes and fights this monster. And it's a really 
epic, also really grotesque and gruesome fight, I will say, but it's a great part of the book. And this, to me, I can't think of a specific example, Jay, but you might be able to, but this really felt like actually a kind of early medieval hagiographic account where we get saints encountering like river monsters and other types of aquatic monsters and dragons and so on. No, I'm glad you brought that. I mean, it was the first thing that jumped into my mind when you read this, that this this idea of these aquatic demonic monsters or something um, is definitely a trope of of saints' lives and, and the, the story of saints' heroic feats. Not just saints' lives either. I mean, you can think of the 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 uh the story that the Merovingian kings, for instance, were descended from a kind of river sea creature of some sort. You know, the easy example that would be a parallel of this would be uh uh the life of Saint Columba and uh the the earliest attested mention of the Loch Ness monster when Columba kind of commands this aquatic monster of some sort uh, in Scotland in the in the Loch Ness uh, to obey him because of his holiness. And often these river monsters that we find in, you know, in lots of. Yeah, you're right. Probably mostly early medieval hagiographies um, are used as a way of demonstrating that the saints holiness kind of gives them power not over demons but over nature that 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 holiness and a kind of authority goes hand in hand um to command these kind of demonic eruptions and stuff like that yeah i i mean that's absolutely what this made me think of and yeah is very um is very true to kind of uh, uh, medieval mentalities that one of the main ways in which um kind of quasi demonic forces uh, can be seen is is through these kind of terrifying river monsters, you know, giant eels or spiked dragony swimmer things. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. Well, I'm glad you had the same thought too, because I think it's really a very, very cool detail. And it is, you know, also one of, and also one of the features about these types of creatures as we get them in medieval literature and as we get them here is that these are kind of, I don't know, populist types of, of holy fights, right? That these are not uh, fights about the, you know, inner workings of the soul of the the saint or you know whoever might be the protagonist of of this monster fighting story that this is really about protecting people right and that it's often about you know this monster is devastating you know the the farmland and also the river which are are needed for necessary for life they're killing just regular people so this is not about you know protecting uh, you know royal family not about protecting nobility not about protecting the church it's actually about holy people often church people monks or, or low-level priests protecting the people, which is a part of their holy mission from God, right? It's part of what the church is meant to do is to be a force for good in people's lives and to protect them from this type of evil. And it's interesting that that's, this is, you know, this is the first step that Thomas and also Matthew take on their journey to redemption. I think it is spot on. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right to to point out this function of, of kind of holiness at this time that, you know, you know, one easy interpretation of it is that in the early Middle Ages, um, when kind of legal norms are weak and communities are fragile um, and existence is is far from guaranteed, um, that saints provide kind of communal stability. Like this is the way in which the community will be made safe and will be allowed to thrive and stuff like this. And so being able to protect them from monsters and things like that is a nice way of demonstrating that. It is interesting here um, that what 
what is recruited in the end is a knight. Like, go kill this thing with your sword. Um, you know, uh, a parish priest who was really well versed in his hagiography would have noticed that Delphine was kind of holy and said, hey, Delphine, could you please go banish this monster for us with your holy powers or something? Um, you know, it could have been a, a, a fun alternative for how this, you know, maybe Thomas tries to attack it and fails utterly or something. And Delphine kind of strolls in and you know, pronounces, be gone, be gone, monster, be gone from this place. And it kind of slinks away in in horror or something like that. Right. One of the strengths, though, I think, of Delphine in a, a sort of modernist literature sense, right, is that one of the things that she's doing is not just using her numinous ability to actually confront demons. She's using her numinous ability to make people better, right, to restore, to redeem people. And so this is the first beat there where she is you know, providing this or you know, serving as this catalyst for both Father Matthew and for Thomas to say, yeah, we need to we need to do this thing. So yeah, she might've been able to just, you know, perform some kind of uh, third level D and D cleric spell yeah, and take exactly. care of this thing, but it was better for everybody for, for Thomas and Matthew to, to have Thomas their part in this. It. Right. Agreed. Exactly. Yeah. And, but there is a clever conceit that is done that we don't find out about this fight until the end of the novel, um, which is before this fight, Delphine is supposedly trying to help Thomas clean his sword or something, but she cuts herself and bleeds all over his sword. And he gets really angry about it. Like, oh, why can't I leave you alone? Why are you bleeding? Why, why is everything you do wrong? Um, but we find out at the end of the novel that Delphine's blood is holy. And in fact, the only way in which Thomas was able to kill this monster was because his sword was fortified with this blood that essentially gave it the power to kill this demonic monster that without it, um, he would have been hopeless in this fight. His sword would have done no damage at all. Right. But he didn't know that at the time. And so this victory he has, you know, this is a boon for his self-esteem. This is what gets him out of this this psychological muck that he's in, right? Starts to yeah. see himself as a person who could be useful in the world, have a place in society, be be good again, right? This is someone who should be alive and be active in the world. So yeah, it's a it's a fantastic actual bit, I think, of of you know, using the monster to to work as a metaphor and just, you know, in fine Buffy the vampire slayer fashion, I think. Exactly. Totally. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the next thing we've got on our list here, which is this uh, um, castle that is, you know, <laughs> is just in the middle of the, the countryside that they come to that um, is just about to have a big feast and also a big tournament. And uh, uh, Thomas, very much like the Hound from Game of Thrones, is a big dude and people want to watch him fight. And so he's invited to take part in the feast and also in the tournament and his companions are invited along as well. Matthew does go along. Delphine says, I'm not going in there. I'm going to sleep in a tree. I'm going to climb a tree and sleep in this tree outside. Which she does a lot. She does a lot. She loves sleeping she in climbs, trees. Climbing trees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's good to be, it's good to be a kid. Uh, but it turns out that this castle is not real. <laughs> it's uh, some kind of demonic castle, but also feels very much like it's out of late medieval fairy stories to me, that it is supernatural. It only exists here for this brief period of time. If you go in and, you know, you're going to get kind of trapped in here, you, you succumb to the delights of this castle, though Thomas and Matthew uh, do succumb to those delights. They still manage, nevertheless, to overcome that and make it out alive again. But this was a real creepy part of the story, but also I think just very smart and very cool in the way that is drawing on medieval literature. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you first meet this castle um, and, um, you know, they sort of 
provide all this hospitality and they well, oh, you're a knight. Come fight in this tournament we're about to have. Have all this food. We'll give you comfortable beds. You know, everything is wonderful here. You know, th- this is a this is a, a trope of medieval secular romance literature, um, the sort of knight errant or something always finds some castle where all this hospitality will be provided to him and yeah you're right often sometimes they turn out to be tricks or traps of some sort um you know some sometimes uh malignants more often kind of just testing or or playful or something it is funny though as you transition from the river monster to this the demonic castle how if 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 you're someone who's sort of spends too much of your life reading medieval literature and medieval sources, it feels like you've been displaced, that the first story was from like hagiography, from religious literature. And this feels right out of like secular literature, right out of vernacular uh, romance stories, almost something out of the Arthurian cycle or something like that. And it was a clever it was a clever kind of transition in a lot of ways, but then turns out to be, you know, the same demon, the 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 knight that uh Thomas has to fight in the tournament turns out to be the demon who was the river monster also um, just in another guise now. Yeah, I think you're right about this feeling of of displacement here. And it feels like this book and this book feels like in a lot of ways, it's Bielman is doing a similar exercise to what Tolkien did in constructing Middle Earth, which is I'm taking a lot of medieval literature and uh, building a world by taking elements of it. It's you know kind of fan fiction about medieval literature. They're done in very very different ways, obviously yeah. there. But um, yeah, displacement was sort of a, a feeling that I had as well, in part because of yeah the different genres, but I also also different times, right? I think these, you know, fighting the monster in hagiography is a much earlier, maybe not a much earlier, but it's an earlier phenomenon. It's a feature of literature in the earlier part of the Middle Ages. Whereas, yeah, these, uh, you know, fairy castles uh, for the knight errant to encounter is, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, a 12th century and onward uh, type of literature. Yeah, I mean, one one thinks, you know, perhaps most banali of, of or most obviously not banali um, of like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, who encounters this mysterious castle where he is feted and, and, and sort of given the most outstanding hospitality for three days as part of his knight's quest. But it turns out he's wrapped up in a game that he doesn't really understand the rules of and stuff like that. You know, that doesn't turn out to be a demonic game. Um, it turns out to be more of a playful test of chivalry and stuff like that. Um, but even here, I mean, this is not you know, totally unlike what Thomas is going through, right? This This is a test moment for him in a lot of ways. Um, and he just barely passes is is my kind of reading of it. Um, and, and Matthew as well. Um, Matthew kind of way overindulges at the feast and stuff like that gives in to sort of his his kind of temptations and things. Thomas kind of understands that things are he's mocked at the feast, kind of stumbles off and is like, oh, I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore. Like both of them are right on the precipice here um, without even kind of realizing it, even though Delphine kind of knows what's up in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think temptation is the the word that we we need here, right? To see how this this functions, and this is how this sort of thing functions in medieval literature, where like if you find yourself in a situation like this, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, and and try to get out, right? Because once you start, you know, in, indulging in the material delights of you know this this numinous world, then you're going to get trapped there. And you know, something we should maybe talk about just very briefly is the relationship between fairies and hell. Uh, 
uh, in medieval literature because you know there are certainly are elements of this type of story that we get with fairies, like in uh, Gawain and the Green Knight. But then there are other stories where this feels more demonic than it does, you know, uh, you know, fae, I guess. But that's because there's a big overlap between fairies and demons in medieval literature, or at least in some medieval literature, right? That um, fairies sometimes are regarded as actually being demons or having some kind of uh, alliance with hell and and so on. I mean, there's medieval literature, early modern literature as well, in which fairies actually are the angels who fell with with Lucifer. And so there's an overlap here, um, you know, in the source material, but then also in the way that Billman is presenting it that I think is very smart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess I would be remiss not to mention a very delightful moment in this scene where <laughs> the priest uh, is forced to perform a mockery of the Eucharist. Um, he's presented with monkey brains to eat, um, you know, common, del- <laughs> common delicacy. Um, and the Lord of this castle tells him to pronounce the phrase hawk est mayum cerebrum. This is my brain before he is allowed to eat these monkey brains, um, which of course is a, a mockery of the phrase hawk est meus corpus, the, the, the central phrase of the Eucharist and of the mass, which Matthew would have to do regularly. And initially he refuses to do it. He's like, no, I, I can't do this. And then the, the Lord says, well, fine, you don't have to, but we're not going to give you any more wine. And then he goes ahead and does it, and it's it's some kind of lapse at that moment, and it's referenced later in the book as as a moment of failure on his part, um, that that this kind of uh, willingness to mock the Eucharist so that he can have more wine is something he then has to kind of atone for that that he hasn't quite gotten through his path of redemption yet. Right. Yeah. This is a great narrative beat, actually, I think, because we have this success with the monster and the river, and then we have a step back here where Delphine even tells them not to go in, right? And they do anyway. And so we see, you know, this is not going to be a neat uh, path to redemption here, that they're, you know, these are these are characters who really need redemption. They have struggles, right? They have some metaphorical demons as well as living in a world where there are actual demons building castles for them to, you know, to trap their souls and so on. So I think this is is not a trite story about redemption, right? This no. is actually, I think, a pretty gritty uh, post Game of Thrones type of story about redemption. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's you know the the whole you know the whole feel of it is sort of like hanging on by a thread for dear life throughout there. The horrors just keep coming one after another after another. Thomas is always having to figure out how to simultaneously Simultaneously maintain his virtue while dealing with all of these horrific um, things in the landscape. Yeah, it's not an easy story by any means. Well, let's continue our journey here and go to Paris with our uh, our, our trio of uh, road traveling companions here. There are some really cool things happening in Paris. One is that, you know, you mentioned earlier, Jay, that it just feels like a city that has been ravished by the the, the plague. And it's actually a great uh, urban setting. It's really the only like big urban setting that we get in, in the story. So we go from, you know, wandering around the countryside that's been stuck between the two fires to now we're in, you know, the capital city and see what the the Black Death has done here. Uh, And there's some cool supernatural things happening here. The 
first thing that we'll talk about is uh, that we encounter the wandering Jew. This is a, a Jewish person, a Jewish man who cursed Christ when he was on his way to the crucifixion, uh, you know, carrying his cross. And this Jew has been cursed to live until the second coming of, of Christ, right? Until Christ returns. And this is a story that shows up in medieval literature pretty late, not until the 13th century. So really only about a hundred years before this story is set. And I don't know that this story was that important in the Middle Ages, actually, Jay, you know, important or well-known, but it's certainly all over modern culture and all over our pop culture as well. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the first time I read it, uh, it it's 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 not important. It's not widespread in medieval culture. And I missed the reference the first time I read it. I thought he was just a Jewish, uh, a relic, relic vendor, um, you know, pretend, pretending to be Christian when actually Jewish. Um, and it, it wasn't until the second time I paged through it. And there's when Delphine kind of rescues him at the end when he he's asking, is it time yet? Is it time? Is it now? And she says, not yet. Ah, OK, finally, it clicked for me what this who this guy was actually supposed to be here. Um, yeah, it, it's a clever incorporation of this. And it's a, a clever way um, for Delphine to get what turns out to be one of the central MacGuffins of the entire story, which is the spear, the actual spear that pierced Christ's side that this wandering Jew has because, yeah. He was there at the time. Yeah. Yeah, right. You earlier you mentioned this as the the spear of Longinus. It's also called the spear of of destiny. Longinus or, or Longinus is the, the name of this Roman satyrion who uh pierced Christ's side while he was dying on the the cross. This is a story that's um in the Gospel of John, but not in the the other three gospels, the synoptic gospels. But this story also becomes a you know an element of medieval culture. I mean, much more important than the wandering Jew. This actually begins very early too. In fact, in late antiquity, it begins in the fourth century. That's actually when this soldier is named. He's not actually named Longinus in the gospel, but in an apocryphal text, he gets this name Longinus or Longinus. Uh, and then the spear itself appears as a relic in a lot of places, first in Jerusalem in the early Middle Ages, then in Constantinople. And then after that, there are multiple copies of it because, you know, yes. Constantinople and Constantinople Cited and Vienna. In many places. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, right. Vienna has a copy. Constantinople has a copy or they, or they you know, they both claim to have it is, I guess, what we're trying to say. Exactly. Uh, which is also really just to say that the possession of this relic is wrapped up in ideas of imperial legitimacy in the later Middle Ages. And then, of course, right, this again, like the wandering Jew, it is all over our pop culture. In fact, uh, Brent and I just encountered this spear in a 1980s Justice Society comic book that we did an episode on for hanging out with the Dream King where Hitler has it and he actually uses it to begin Ragnarok, right? So uh, Hitler... has this spear oh, that pierced synchronism for you yeah wow. it's uh it's nuts it's it's a pretty it's pretty nuts and it's actually just the like macguffin to get the the plot started it doesn't even really matter all that much for the story but there it is that's just one example of how this has even just shown up in my reading in the last uh last few months but you know here in this story what's happening is that the wandering jew yeah has this spear uh But Delphine then gets it. He gives this spear to Delphine. Or really, I think it's just the tip of the spear, right? It's the, you know, the the, the metal part of it. And this becomes an important element, you know, for her, an an important tool, an important weapon for her and her battle uh, against against the demons. And uh, that's cool. It was cool to see this really important part of our pop culture show up here in Paris, just, uh, you know, like on a bridge, a guy's trying to sell some, some relics. It was very cool. 
Yeah. And, you know, it was also well established as a devotional object um, by the 14th century in depictions of what are called the Arma Christi, um, where you have these kind of schematic demonstrations of the Arma Christi being the weapons of Christ. Um, And so it would be the crown of thorns, the spear, the whip that gave him the lashes, the cross, all the things that were used to inflict suffering on Jesus during the Passion get kind of conceptualized as the weapons with which he fought the devil. Um, And you just have depictions of these that become sort of devotional images to think about Christ's passion. You could look at each individual object and sort of reflect on that moment in the passion narrative and stuff like this. Um, And so here, you know, the, the conceit of the Arma Christi becomes kind of literalized in a lot of ways. Christ fought the devil with the spear of Longinus by allowing himself to be stabbed with it here. It's going to become Thomas's weapon in some ways, but ultimately returns to its original purpose and is used to stab Delphine. Um, so it's a nice play on this idea of the, the instruments of the passion as weapons with which to fight the devil. Yeah. The arm of Christie, this is uh, it's sad uh, that these never showed up in Indiana Jones. These would have been actually like a great uh, series of artifacts for like a, a TV version of Indiana Jones to go after in uh, season long arcs, you know, one for, for each item. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. You have to set them right next to the grail, right? You'd have the, you'd have a, the complete set at that point. <laughs> you collect all four. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I don't know. I, I can't say I've, I've been pleased where Indiana Jones has, has gone since the last crusade. Uh, not that we've even seen the fifth film yet, though. That actually probably be coming out around the time that we're, uh, we're releasing this episode. So I don't know if people are interested in our thoughts on Indiana Jones. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll, we'll do that. You can let us know if you're interested in that. But, uh, let's Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in Paris, uh, which is that there there are some monsters here. These monsters are awesome. These were, I'm just going to say up front, Jay, these were my favorite monsters that we get in the whole book. These are statues, like marble, uh, other types of stone statues that become possessed with demons. And at night, they come off of their perches, their pedestals, and they wander around Paris, knocking on people's doors, and then biting the faces of anyone who opens the door, like eating people. They're they're kind of a, a type of zombie, and they're terrifying. It's very cool. And they're not just any statues. As far as I can tell, they're specifically religious statues from the cathedrals. So the Virgin Mary, um, various other saints and stuff like that. It's it's not just any old statue. It's religious religious statues intended for devotional purposes specifically. Right. Yeah. The statues of uh, Philip Augustus and uh, Clovis and Charlemagne, uh, sadly, not not coming alive. Correct. Yeah. It, they're super creepy. Um, and the way they're written about is super creepy. Um, and it's it's a dramatic, perhaps the most terrifying scene in the book, I would say. I also have to say as monsters, as monstrosities, perhaps the least medieval feeling of all the monstrosities we encounter here, the the ones that feel least at home, um, not that they don't feel at home in kind of a medieval landscape, but that unlike the fairy castle or the river monster, these are not the kind of monsters that medieval people imagined for themselves in their writings. Yeah, that's right. I think what's happening here in terms of trying to create this uh, this hellscape right here for our heroes to go through is thinking about some of the key features of of 
urban life in the Middle Ages, and certainly one of them being these amazing Gothic cathedrals, right? And so what's a horrific, horrifying, scary thing we can do with that is uh, that also involves demons is have these statues come alive. But yeah, I mean, it's it's also... I mean, it's straight out of Doctor Who, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's what's happening. Exactly. It's a very modern, almost like sci-fi trope to have these kind of living statues. Yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, totally terrifying. And really, these were probably my favorite my favorite monsters that we got in the book. And I, I really liked the Paris section of the book in general. But uh, let's leave Paris behind now. And uh, we've got one more item to talk about here before we uh, move into the really the end of the book, or at least one more monster to talk about before we move into the end of the book. And uh, these are the demonic penitents. Um, that we get really at the end of the second part of the book. These are people who are wandering the countryside, going from town to town, village to village, uh, telling them that they, you know, telling the inhabitants, I should say, that they, these penitents, have found, you know, the solution to the Black Death, a way to be immune to it, right? And it's to perform um, certain types of of prayers and and rituals and so on. But the leader of these penitents is actually a demon, and his followers are all reanimated corpses who are possessed by demons. Uh, at least some of them are possessed by demons. Some of them might just be like empty reanimated corpses. And so we also get a big uh, demons versus angels battle here at the end of part two. This is really kind of where we get to see you know, where part three is coming. But uh, I found these penitents interesting because you, you even brought up this type of religiosity when you were talking about uh, some of the cultural effects of the Black Death. Yeah, it, it's an interesting sort of conceit here. Um, you know, we have these movements of these kind of penitential movements during the Black Death, of course. And, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be surprising that in a period where it feels like hell on earth has come, that everyone is dying, there's this horrible disease that cannot be stopped or anything like that, that people say, well, the problem is we're not being Christian enough, we're being punished for our sins, and we, we need to do penance now. Um, and some of these penitential movements like the flagellants uh, become very extreme in sort of their approaches and they do wander from town to town, um, you know, demanding that people become better Christians and stuff like that. Um, the way this scene played out for me was quite surprising. You know, I, I figured out, okay, these guys are actually demons. Rutger, as he's named, is 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 the bad guy again, the same guy from the fairy castle and from the river monster. Um but the way the scene ultimately played out with the sudden eruption of demons in their evil seraphic form, these kind of whirling, whirling wings of darkness and all their eyes and the appearance of an actual angel to come help Delphine out in her moment of need and stuff uh, caught me by surprise that it was it was going to be that overt that the the battle between heaven and hell was actually going to play out, you know, kind of corporeally on Earth in some ways. Right. We had been getting glimpses of this, teases of this in some of the, the framing narratives. But I also, I think, I, I, I kind of didn't believe them in some sense. I didn't think that this was actually going to happen. I didn't think that those two parts of the story were going to collide quite the way that they do here at the very end of the second act and into the, the third act of the, of the book. Um, and so, yeah, it was an interesting move. I mean, it was certainly a, a surprising move for me. And maybe before we move into, you know, talking about the end of this book, let's just talk about this first part of the book or first two parts of the book, really talk about this, uh, you know, this setting, talk about this world stuck between the two fires and in particular in the immediate aftermath of the Black Death, seeing it as this apocalyptic 
hellscape. We've been talking about the monsters, but of course, there's other stuff going on here as well. They can't find food, uh, can't find wine. That's very important for for you know Father Matthew. People are suspicious of of strangers and so on, um, and so you know there's a big sense in which to continue my barrage of pop culture references here. This doesn't feel all that dissimilar to The Walking Dead. But I wonder, Jay, how historically accurate do you think this is to what what it was like to be wandering around France in the, you know, immediate aftermath of the Black Death? I mean, setting aside all of the, you know, actual monsters. Yeah. So if you think about the entire trip from uh, the town where we start, St. Martin Le Preux, well, that's actually the second town on it, but through Paris, all the way to Avignon, um, they've transversed a big chunk of France, uh, by the time we are done. And there's a lot here that does feel historically accurate for sure. Um, depopulated towns, um, suspicion, you know, isolation strategies to sort of keep the plague from appearing and stuff like that. One thing that might be a little suspect, um, if we really want to get nitpicky is the fact that the plague here seems to have by this moment just stricken all of France. Every town we come to has been hit by the plague. Every town has been depopulated. And and realistically, the plague moved more slowly and more sporadically through France. At, at the moment we were wandering through, for instance, there would be towns that hadn't been hit by it at all, really, yet at this point. Um, there would be other towns that would be in the recovery phase from it and stuff like this. The plague didn't just like descend on all of France all at once, and the whole landscape kind of was affected by it. So, you know, whereas here, to, to play up the kind of gritty hellscape that the book's ethos is trying to convey, pretty much every place they go feels as if it is in the complete throes of the plague. There is no respite to be found. There's no safe havens or anything like that. Very much like The Walking Dead. Um, I think historically, I'm totally on board with this as sort of a storytelling device and as sort of a way to evoke the kind of atmosphere that the the book wants to historically probably you know people did flee from the plague to places where it was known not to be um there there would have been at various moments safe havens from it and stuff like that yeah and at least until the people fleeing the plague show up carrying the plague with them right which is of course what happens but yeah you're right to point this out because in fact i had a little confusion about even when this story actually is happening because paris actually is pretty late to get the Black Death. It doesn't get the Black Death until 1349. Um, and so my sense was that uh, where Delphine is living in Picardy, if her father has recently just died from the Black Death, like his corpse is still you know, not decomposed, right? That Paris probably actually hadn't had the Black Death. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And Avignon probably was... Well, my chronology is a little futzy, but Avignon probably would, would be on the bounce back at this point in a lot of ways. Um yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, I, I I don't think that maybe, you know, well, one, that type of nitpicking is not something we normally do and not really what we're here for. But I still think there's like a, I, I think that there's a sense here that this book provides to, you know, people now to really try to envision what, you know, what it would have been like to go through a pandemic like this one, you know, very different from the one that we all have just gone through that I, I, I think, you know, commends itself. I'm not about to assign this book to students, let me be clear. But I do think still that it, this can concern to, to help people envision a past that's very different. Yeah. From and one of, one of the things I do think it does very well that that feels historically vibrant to me um, is kind of envision 
complicated methods of cooperation that people were forced into by the plague. Uh, so, for instance, when they take the river, when the, when they take the river ferry, which is actually a pirate boat, it turns out um, sort of this idea that, yeah, people don't want to hang out with other people here in plague conditions. But, you know, social order has broken down. Money isn't necessarily worth what it used to be and stuff like this. And people are forced into uneasy alliances throughout this book, um, which does feel feel to me to to kind of capture um, some of the the complexities of, of living through a time like the plague, like where, where are you going to get food? You have to work with people you don't want to work with to get food. Um, you know, what, what, you know, even monasteries here provide no safe refuge from any, but from anything. Um, th- there's a lot of moments in here that I think are really well done in trying to capture the feel of what it would have been like to live through the black death. Yeah, I I agree, and there's a lot of of, of chaos at a kind of uh, uh, political level as well, where people who are you know in charge of what passes for government in the Middle Ages are not fulfilling the duties of their offices, but rather are using the power that that they have to make sure they survive, even if that means lots and lots of peasants and villages don't survive. And that's a world that that our characters are navigating as well. There's a lot of uh, you know people looking out for themselves and you know, their groups at the expense of of others, which, you know, that is the exact plot of The Walking Dead, as we said, but uh, also I think does feel feel right for this sort of immediacy of this. And yeah, ultimately I, I enjoyed wandering around this world. Yeah. And, and it's got, it, it plays this card maybe one time too often a little bit, but um, definitely does the kind of anytime somebody is being really nice to you and offering you something that seems really good. Yeah. You know, that person is going to come out as an evil demon or someone without your best <laughs> intentions. So, you know, there's the, the fairy castle where it seems like they're finally going to get a good meal. Um, the priest has this hilarious encounter um, with a monk who promises him kind of absolution, except he then t- tells him he has to kill Delphine, basically. And it turns out to be evil St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who Delphine says actually was not a saint. He's in hell, actually, because he preached the Crusades and stuff like that. There's this weird kind of nun character who turns out to be a scarecrow who's being nice to Delphine and then is evil and is trying to um, get the spear from her and stuff like that. So it, it does lean into this idea of anything that feels like security is an illusion. Yeah, trust trust no one is uh, I think exactly. one of the, certainly with the motto of the, the the of this book for sure. Well, we have been talking about this book up to this point. I think far more you know as a setting, right, with some random encounters. But there is actually a, a plot at the end of the book, and that plot is that the Pope has been replaced by a demon, and he is about to call a pogrom against Jews. He's also about to call a crusade against the Holy Land, and. The idea here is that all of this is in service of continuing to, well, essentially, I guess, to unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse, because these demons are trying to take their war against the angels, you know, to, uh, you know, our world, to the you know terrestrial land where we all live. And of course, Delphine is going to intervene here. She is going to stop the demons. This results in the arrival of more demons than also angels. And so at the end, there is this big battle between these two supernatural forces just you know like in france just hanging out in in avignon there's this massive angels versus demons battle um 
yeah, Delphine, and I'm really, really simplifying things here, but Delphine survives, though she does not remember anything from this time because, as we've talked about, she was this holy vessel. She was, you know, herself, but she was also Christ who has returned to fight these demons. Um, Thomas, as we've talked about, does die and go to hell, but is rescued by Delphine. And so, he gets a, you know, he, he survives in that sense. He, he is returned to his, his body or his body is returned to life in our world at the end. And we get this epilogue where, in fact, he becomes a Franciscan friar and he, uh, he checks in on Delphine, who of course does not remember him. She doesn't remember anything from this, this part of her life. And, uh, I thought that was a really nice sentimental ending. Um, I don't know. How did you feel about the, the, the last part of this book, Jay? Yeah. So, uh- We'll say I loved the ending whereby Thomas goes to hell and is rescued from it by a harrowing by Delphine. Um, It was clever, if a little bit temporally confusing, that Delphine just kind of reverts to her position at the beginning of the story. We meet her again, just burying her dead father, which had happened at the beginning of the book. This time, Thomas shows up as kind of a nice guy and adopts her as his daughter he becomes a Franciscan friar. She also becomes a professed religious of some sort, and it's reference that they have this kind of nice life together as as professed religious people. That was all very touching, and I thought really appropriate end of the story and stuff. I gotta say, if I have one big qualm with the book, it, it, I've already hinted at this a little bit. It was just with how overt the battle between angels and demons was finally, where we get this actual showdown of literal demons and literal angels having this titanic fight over the city of Avignon and out into the countryside and stuff like that. It made for good drama and stuff like that. But for a book that had spent so much of its time very subtly evoking the presence of demons and showing the multifarious ways in which they could interact in the world during the Black Plague. This just felt like so on the nose to me. I I almost like if you wanted to write that scene where you see angels and demons fighting each other, I almost would have liked it if if Delphine had gone into like a state of ecstasis and was seen like the the unseen world where this battle was really taking place but that it was playing out in the human world through more mundane things through people making choices through uh virtuous actions or or, or something like that uh i it it, it it felt a little i i enjoyed this book the most when it was at its most clever and most subtle in depicting the machinations of demons and I liked it the least when it just decided that with it, we're going to show angels and demons fighting in Southern France. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you say this. You and I have been a little cagey in our correspondence in the lead up to yeah. this uh, <laughs> this episode, but it was clear, I think, to both of us that we each had uh, a gripe about this book. And I'm I'm pleased to learn that it's the same gripe. Oh, really? <laughs> that, uh, how, yeah, how I felt very much the same way that that. I thought, you know, the first two thirds of this book were phenomenal. I loved this setting. This was a place that I wanted to read more books uh, in, you know, this setting. I wanted to play a role playing game in this uh, in this really cool setting. And I thought that what we had been building up to was something that was going to be far more akin to uh, uh, Gandalf um, healing Theoden. Um, You know, like that's what I thought we were going to get. I did not think we were going to get this actual angels versus demons, like military conflict. I... 
I'm not interested in that. Like if someone, you know, pitches that as a, you know, this is the plot of a book or, you know, the plot of a TV show or something, I'm, I'm probably going to pass on that. That doesn't really interest me. And it sounds like a video game, right? It sounds like Diablo or something like something you would play. Yeah, I think so. Or just a book where, you know, a story where like, that's the whole thing. And so I felt like there was a, a fairly big, um, sharp and unexpected turn here at the end of the book. Now, I still liked quite a bit of the writing and some of the way this was done, this you know cool trip to um, the vineyards on the other side of the river outside of Avignon, where actually all of the workers are zombies. Like Those things were cool. It was really just the sort of literalness of this angels versus demons military conflict at the very um, end before the epilogue that, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't care for. I wanted it to be a little smaller scale. And 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 again, if you wanted to write, I think there, if you wanted to write that scene, if you really wanted to write the drama of a scene of angels and demons fighting each other like this, you know, have Delphine go into a kind of ecstatic visionary state or something like that. And she sees it's happening, but no one else can. Right. No one else is aware that this titanic battle is taking place in the kind of divine space around them. Um, and that they're influencing it by their kind of terrestrial actions or, or something like that. This would have been, I think, much more in keeping with the kind of medieval ethos of it. It would have made Delphine into this slightly visionary character. It would have conveyed the idea between kind of the earthly city and the holy city. Um, you could have, you could have leaned into sort of medieval concepts of 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 the divine and of the earthly there a little bit, and and preserved that scene if you wanted to write it, but not have it be um, so, so literal and 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 so determinative in the end. Right? This we've 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 carried these characters through all this redemption arc and through all these stories. And in the end, Delphine, like her big role is to like be stabbed and like split open as a portal so that angels can come into the world. It, ah, it's very weird. I have to say. Yeah. It felt a little less like medieval apocalyptic vision and more like, um, I don't know, something you might experience at a Grateful Dead concert or something like that. You know? Yeah. It felt a little more modern than, than so much of the, the, the book had, uh, like this was a place where, yeah, there, you, you, you know, Buhlman could have drawn on medieval literature, but, but chose to, um, take cues more from, you know, contemporary urban fantasy. Yeah. Instead. It could have had like the, the population of Avignon, for instance, turn on the Jews, like turn on the Jewish quarter and begin a pogrom in the book. And then Delphine looks at this pogrom and sees like, you know, the demons beating back the angels or something like that. And, and somehow that process has to be reversed or, or, or something. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I agree. There are ways that Buhlman could have done this differently. But, you know, this is the book that we got. I'm glad yeah. to have read it. I, I did oh, enjoy absolutely. it, in the, uh, you know, certainly in the in the whole. Well, Jay, I, I, before we move on to talking about what we are going to cover next, I wonder if you had any uh, uh, reading music that you used for this. There's an awful lot of music that has survived from like the from, you know, from the late Middle Ages. Some of it, you know, actually quite dealing with like apocalyptic visions, uh, not actually even from the late Middle Ages, from the high Middle Ages. Like there's, you know, the mystic Hildegard von Bingen who, you know, has some really cool, uh, you know, church music, monastic type music. Uh, did you listen to any of that while you were reading? Uh, you know, I didn't. I read this book in pretty complete silence and pretty uh, total solitary existence. You know, I didn't even some good troubadour, good troubadour music would have been a nice touch to have for this. Maybe like the Cambridge songs or something like that. Uh, but no, I, I sat out by the ocean and read this book in the in the quiet pretty much uh which 
yeah, it was not a bad way to do it, but I didn't even think to read it with music. What about you? Yeah, you were at the the end of the world of your you know exactly. the, the end yeah. of your own world there. Yeah, you know I read this actually largely in a a, a library actually, and oh. I would take like sort of uh, thirty or forty minutes before I was about to go teach after having been in an office all day, just trying to you know reset before going to do the more performative parts of our our job. And uh, yeah, um, did not put on any of that medieval music, even though I listened to quite a bit of that frequently. And yeah, thought Hildegard von Bingen would go well. Troubadour yeah. music certainly you know from southern France would have been great. But um, actually, this book reminded me a lot of the Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, which was also then turned into a film that I think starred Aragorn, right? It did. Um, Viggo yeah. Mortensen, absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And the the score for that done by Nick Cave and, and Warren Ellis is fantastic. And so I wound up putting that on because I just felt like I was reading The Road again, which is a book I super recommend for for people. But yeah, so that's a one, that wonderful got, book. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so that, that music got the, the feeling for me. So that's, uh, I don't know, that's my recommendation for uh, for listeners if they want to want to read the book and have something uh, to listen to while they are doing it. Uh, but let's talk about what's next, Jay. So um, we have now done a complete course of, you know, covering all of the big publishing categories in the speculative fiction umbrella. We've done fantasy, we've done science fiction, and now finally we have done some supernatural horror. So um, let's go back to just picking a, a genre here and then drilling down. So Jay, just the first question is, um, you know, if we're going to read another book and do this again over the summer, do you want to do science fiction or do you want to do fantasy? Hmm. Let's do some fantasy. All right. Well, I've got three book suggestions for you here that you can uh, pick from, though you also can veto all of them and come up with your own alternative here. But uh, um, first is one that you and I have talked about before, both on the air and and off the air, and that is The Buried Giant by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. This will do some Arthuriana for us, which came up a little bit in our conversation today. Gawain is a character in that book, as I recall. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you've read this book before and I, I have not. Yeah, yeah. So I would be eager to to read that, but you know, no pressure there. The uh, um, second book on this list of three that I've got here, also drawing on something that we've encountered here in Between Two Fires, which is medieval court culture. And there's a uh, another book that I have never read called uh, Swords Point by Ellen Kushner, who's someone I have read, just not this book. Um, this is a kind of fantasy of manners, so it's you know not actually set in the Middle Ages, but in a, a secondary world, but imagining you know something akin to medieval court culture. So that would be another place where we could talk about troubadour music, probably, I guess. And then the third item on the list here, Jay, is uh, something that I couldn't stop bringing up uh, during our our coverage here. Uh, And that is A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. This is uh, fantasy reimagining of medieval Britain, plus also massive Shakespeare fan fiction. Um, So I think you know, any of these would be great, but also if you've got alternatives, that would be cool Ooh. too. Oh, that's plenty of good options right there for sure. Oh, The Buried Giant is such a great book and really deserves more more coverage than I think it has gotten. And I think you will really like it. I think we should do The Buried Giant. Okay. Yeah, I'm all about this. And actually in between, uh, you know, before you and I do that, uh, Brandon and I will also be doing an episode on Ishiguro's most recent novel, which is a, a science fiction novel. Oh, and, excellent. Uh, so yeah, I will be like primed for Ishiguro conversations, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the semester or, you know, halfway through our summer or whenever we, uh, uh, whenever we end up having that conversation. So yeah, I'm excited about that. This is a great pick. You told me about this book, I think probably nine years ago, which was pr- yeah. probably when it came out, but I was so deep in writing my dissertation about the fall of the Roman empire that I was like, I I can't read that for fun right now. Like I need to, I need to be reading something with lasers and spaceships in order to not be thinking about my dissertation when I meant to be uh, relaxing. 
Yeah, no, I read. The, we'll talk about this, but I read this while I was a fellow at Notre Dame during my my year of pure research and no teaching and stuff, and it it, it left an impression on me for sure. Yeah, that's right. I, I remember that vividly. But uh, yeah, we can reminisce about that in the intro to that episode a few months from now. So I think uh, that's going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. Jay, thanks for joining me on this uh, this conversation, this episode today. This was super awesome. Yeah, loved it. All right. Well, if you would like to follow along with what we're up to, you can follow the network on Twitter at Clay Temple Media. Uh, and we will be back in a few months with a conversation about uh, Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Very excited for that. And of course, we'll have lots of solo episodes from me in between. And so until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.